Welcome, everyone, for the next episode of the Five Heart Podcast. As you can tell, Greg didn't make it tonight. This is Todd Wolverton. I'll be your host this evening. Um, we were joined by, oh, there he is. We are joined this evening by Mr. Corn Nation, the founder, my good old buddy, John Johnston. John, how are you doing tonight? Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's been a great week. Yesterday, yes, yesterday, I went to a customer site because their servers were down and I walked into their server room, which is in a warehouse and the air conditioning had stopped working and uh, and I almost fainted. I'm glad I didn't faint. And they were like, are you OK? Are you OK? And I'm thinking, I don't want you fuckers calling the ambulance because I don't need this shit. You know, it just it costs two grand to get in an ambulance. It does. Damn. John, your bar for a great week is really low. <laughs> it's uh, you know what it is? It's been a great week because we are less than 40 days away from Husker football. I don't know what the number is, but it's, it's like getting 38. closer. 38. As of today, by the time this airs, but it'll be like 36, 36 35. Yeah. Well, that's good because we are also joined tonight by another one of the founding, well, actually, one of the founding members of the Five Heart Podcast. He was on a couple of weeks ago. Those of you that have been listeners for some time will recognize Haas Reuter. I can tell you what, when I was listening to the podcast back when Haas was a regular, I really looked forward to listening to his analysis. Uh, I can remember those days. I'd I'd wait and uh, hold on to the podcast and in the morning when I was getting ready to go to work, I'd flip it on and, and uh, I'd get smarter because of Haas. Haas, welcome back. Uh, it's good to see you. Hey, could you take just a couple of minutes? There are some people that have joined us, you know, during the pandemic when there was nothing else to do uh, that might not know who you are. So if you could just introduce yourself a little bit so that some of our new listeners have an idea of, of who you are. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for the kind words, Todd, as well. Um, and happy to be back. Um, I was one of the original founding members of the Five Heart Podcast after Brian Toll and Greg Mahachko started it, and I took over after Brian unfortunately passed away back in September 2017. Uh, but before that, I wrote the weekly breakdown uh, under Mike Riley. We called it Decoding Langsdorf. Once Scott Frost took over, John gave it the name of the Frost Focus. And I did that from 2016 to 2019 for so those four seasons. And then after that, I finished up at UNO and I was going into graduate school at UNL and it just wasn't conducive with the podcast and the writing um, while getting a master's degree. So now I'm back at it after finishing my master's in educational psychology and I'm looking forward to breaking down Whipple's offense this time. And I think, uh, I think the offense might be what run the damn ball guy is not a fan of. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, before we jump into that, let me, I, I thought about this after the last episode that uh, I was with you um, on and I, uh, you've got a master's degree in educational psychology. I yes, uh, took three educational psychology classes at the university of Nebraska. And I have to say, while that was really never my gig, I can tell you that I do recall two of the three professors, and I do recall that I learned a lot. And I thought it was really important 
um, you know, taking some of those things and going into the classroom and being an educator and, and have fallen back on some of those lessons over the years. So I think oftentimes that's part of being a teacher that's often overlooked. So it's, it's good it, to was it, we'll pick your was brain it, on that a little bit. Was it Dr. Tom? Didn't he have a doctorate in that? Yeah, he did. Yeah. So what is it in a nutshell? 25 words or less. All right, 25 words or less. Let's, I feel like I'm on like a uh, pageant or something. Um, basically, educational psychology, basically what it relates to is how do people learn? Um, whether it's the cognitive processes of learning, like, you know, short-term, long-term memory encoding, or the environments that they're in, or equipping people with the skills, knowledge, and abilities to be effective in their environment. Do you think it made Dr. Tom the coach he is? Absolutely. And I know like in the PBS documentaries that they came out with after he retired in like 2001 or 2002, Jack Stark points out that T.O. would always downplay the importance of his doctorate in educational psychology as it related to coaching football. But the more I got into this field, and like I said a couple of weeks ago, I'm planning on getting a PhD in it eventually. There were so many things that I'd be, you know, reading about, doing research on, and I realized, I'm like, yeah, this made him into the greatest football coach, college football coach of all time. I mean, elements of psychology were everywhere, whether it was how he treated the players. You know, he's very authoritative, high expectations, high demands, but high warmth, you know. He wasn't just an authoritarian like some football coaches are. Or like in terms of his play calling, it's all behaviorism in the eyes of the defense, you know, it's a three-term contingency where you give them something as a stimulus and you see their response and, you know, there's a consequence, whether it's they bite on the fullback fake on the belly option where the quarterback pulls it after they ran traffic all the time. So it made him into the coach that he was, um, you know, as modest as we all know T.O. to be, he'll always downplay it. But You know I what think, we need? Uh, What's that? We need you need a doctor name, kind of like me. Some people have called me the doctor of love throughout my lifetime. <laughs> well, <laughs> nobody I, has ever called me that. I'll be sure to mention. Uh, I'll be sure to mention your name and thanks when I finally get my PhD. Well, we need to like I don't know, doctor offense. Uh, yeah, we'll come up with something. Doctor, we Oz. will come up with something. You know, like Doctor Oz. I don't think that guy's a doctor. Doctor no. Phil, he's not a fucking doctor. You Dr. can be a Phil, doctor like, before. I, I learned about Doctor Phil. You know, like in grad school, reading about ethics and stuff like that. And I'm like, how the hell does this guy even have a TV show? Like, unethical as hell. You know, <laughs> in every step of the way, the APA won't even claim him. Ugh. Well, yeah. we should probably not answer that question and get into that rabbit hole. We should go on. Yeah. Well, I'll tell, you, then I'll tell you what, let's let's kick it off here. And, and you know, Haas, you made a comment just a few minutes ago that uh, does uh, make the hair stand up on the back of my neck a little bit. Run the damn ball guy is going to be a little bit disappointed, huh? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not 100 percent run the damn ball guy, but I definitely like the physical part of the running game. And now I'm nervous. So <laughs> if you can. If you've you've studied uh, Coach Whipple's offense, you know quite a bit. You know, tell us tell us what Husker fans can look forward to here. Well, first off, I got to echo what you just said. Like, I'm not 100 run the damn ball guy, but as a former offensive lineman in high school football, I love running the ball. The physicality, you know, down blocks, reach blocks, pulling guards, all that. So 
that's always going to have a special place in my heart. But in terms of Whipple's offense, um, it's diverse in the passing game. It reminds me a lot of Purdue under Jeff Brown, a lot of different scheme that they're going to carry into the game to game in order to find the matchup advantage that he wants to find. But in terms of the run game, it's pretty austere. Um, it's a very much an outside zone based offense. So they're really looking to either hit the perimeter on the corner on the stretch handoff or cut it back inside downhill. Um, the constraint plays, the compliments that they're going to have to the outside zone are really going to depend on defenses, defenses alignment. So if they got, you know, a strong side three technique defensive tackle, which is increasingly more rare to see in the Big Ten anymore, Iowa doesn't even really run it. They're more of an under front with a weak side three technique. You're going to see a lot of influence trap, um, pull the backside guard to trap the defensive tackle while pulling the front side guard to widen him out a little bit more. Um, and a few counter plays in short yardage, but other than that, it's very much a passing centric offense. And maybe that's just a function of Whipple being a pragmatist and just those were the tools he had on hand at Pittsburgh with, um, you know, Kenny Pickett and Jordan Addison. Uh, but maybe it's just a point of, you know, his philosophy in terms of offensive football. Well, you know, some of us have speculated and maybe some of us even heard a little bit that, you know, um, there, there'll be somewhat of a marriage, if you will, or emerging maybe of some of Scott Frost's philosophies. And we discussed that a couple of weeks ago where there wasn't really an offensive system under Scott Frost. But, um, you know, is it feasible that there will be a little bit of an influence from Coach Frost and, and diversifying that part of the Whipple offense a little bit? Is that can that happen? That's a good question. I think it. I think it definitely could be feasible, um, especially the conversation that we had two weeks ago about the short yardage runs that we were really successful with last season with Chancellor Brewington in motion, and you know, setting the edge on some of the duo or you know quarterback G lead type runs. And I would love to see elements of that still in the offense. And I think, I think we'll still see it because. It's not like we're transitioning to an offense that's going to be all under center pro style. It's going to be more of a pro style spread offense, shotgun, pistol alignments, whether it's 12 or 21 or 22 personnel. And so I think that that's a natural point to look at. Hey, I think there would be a marriage between what we're doing already and what we did successfully with what Whipple is bringing in from Pitt. Um, and a big, big point there would probably be how uh, how cohesive can they make the language of the offense? Uh, get everybody on the same page so there's not, you know, communication issues between the offensive coordinator who's bringing his own system, but he's adding in new stuff, and then with players on the field. Okay, you mentioned pulling and trapping already. No. Do we have offensive line that can do these things? I mean, wasn't it a couple of years ago I kept asking you about this? <laughs> God, we are John, not, we can't pull. We, we John, can't why'd you pull? have to bring that up to me? We went an entire season in 2016. And when I charted the entire season retrospect, we pulled linemen seven times the entire season. And like five of them came in the last four games. Once Gerald Foss was out. I remember 
being at the Nebraska-Iowa game that year in Iowa City and seeing us run a counter play with Tanner Farmer pulling and kicking the end. And I about shit a ton of bricks because, I mean, we hadn't seen it all year long. Um, in terms of this year, I would be much happier if Cam Jurgens was still at center. Um, yeah. If we're going to pull, you know, have a lot of movement on the offensive line because, I mean, his explosiveness in a, you know, and just how athletic he was, he was able to bury defenders, even though he wasn't typically the, the strongest guy in the middle there. You know, he was a little undersized in terms of his playing weight before the NFL combine. But um, you hope that you have guards that can get out and move. Um, you know, thinking right, losing, uh, I'm going to butcher New, his last New name. Newly. Norden Norden Newly. Losing him really hurts because yeah. he was playing some great football by the end of the year. Um, I mean, talk about just an earth mover at 330 pounds. And right guard, you know, that's up in the air because Sichterman was playing really well at the end of last year. But we lost him to graduation. So if we can – the tackles I feel pretty good about in terms of pulling and, you know, trapping – you mean they can move their feet forward, but they can't take their steps backwards very well. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> hopefully there's at least one of those guys that's not going to be on the field. I'm not going to call him out by name. I think we, can all, we all know who it is, but yeah. Let's just say when there was a personnel change last year before an injury, it was a very good thing for that offensive line. But you didn't actually answer the question. Can we pull? I hope so. I hope I don't want to be just going out there running outside zone, you know, 25, 30 times a game. And their defender, you know, three technique is just spiking up field. And, you know, we don't have any way to control the ends from, you know, boxing it back in or spilling it to the outside. I hope that we got linemen that can pull so that we can control that defensive front a little bit more. Let's assume we can for the purposes of the rest of this conversation. Well, if, if we can, uh, are we talking like, can they move? But like once they arrive at the block, you know, and get fitted up, they're not effective or what are we talking? Here? Let's just say that for the purposes of the rest of this conversation, we have an offensive line that executes not as well as the, the best, the pipeline guys, mm -hmm. but they execute their plays well enough to let's say, I don't know, on a run play, get three yards of carry, four yards of carry. Okay, so let's say and, like and the uh, – pass, pass protect for 2.5 seconds. Let's say like the 2012 offensive line, the year that we won the Legends division and, you know, got buzzsawed <laughs> by Wisconsin. But let's not remember that because I've yeah. tried to just scrub that out of my memory. Um, if we, the offensive line functioned at that level, which is funny looking back on it because I didn't think it was a very good offensive line, and then years go by, it's like, actually, they weren't that bad. Um, I think we'd be in pretty good shape. Kind of like the 2019 offensive line wasn't that bad by the end of the year. They were pretty bad at the beginning, but, you know, they got better. Um, if they can even play to those levels, I think, uh, I think the offense could potentially – be maybe at that 2018 level under Frost first year, you know, we racked up a lot of yards, you know, racked up a lot of points, whether those were skewed by garbage time or not in a few of those games. Um, I think that would be a good starting point. So assuming that Nebraska can run the ball a little bit and does run the ball a little bit, 
you've dug into, you know, the Whipple offense when it was at Pitt. Uh, perhaps you've even dug a little bit further back than that. Um, we, we know that he, uh, or at least at Pitt, they were a pass-heavy uh, pass offense. Um, as you've analyzed it, as you've looked at it, you know, what are we, you know, what's your best prediction of what we're going to see um, come that uh, Saturday over in Ireland and into the, into the season? What do you, what's it going to look like? <laughs> you know, I kind of, one thing that kind of struck me was the Mike Riley offense. I know all of our listeners probably just all groaned right then and there, but the Mike Riley offense during Tommy Armstrong's senior year, the way they were able to blend, you know, running the ball effectively, effective enough. They weren't going to light the world on fire. You know, no one's going to confuse that team for the 1995 Nebraska running game. But they ran the ball well enough. They ran. They threw a lot of passing concepts out of the shotgun. Pro-style spread offense. A lot of bunch sets. A lot of trip sets. Uh, motion backs out of the backfield to get them out on the perimeter. Hit them on a quick swing pass. I think that's what it's going to look like. And that's one of the things I like about Whipple's offense is his use of motion with the receivers in the passing game to open up, you know, that defender chases the motion. It's man coverage and it opens up some leverage on the edge, you know, for like a, you know, a flat route from the running back or a wheel route or a rail route up the boundary. And so using that motion to find that weakness, find, you know, what, identify the coverage. I think we'll be doing a lot of that just to get easy throws in space. And that's something that like Purdue excels really well at with all the uses of their motion from their slot receivers, whether it's Rondale Moore or, um, Oh God, number 33 white wide receiver. He had an older brother who played for him too. I'm trying to draw a total blank on his name right now. Um, but also in terms of, you know, trips formations, Ohio State does a great job of having unbalanced passing game where they're going to overload you to one side with trips and then they're going to isolate the backside receiver and man coverage or they'll go with a four-by-one or three-by-two set. So I think you'll see us flooding a lot of the coverage zones and for easy completions, you know, getting guys wide open. I don't. One thing that I've noticed with Pitt is for as talented as Kenny Pickett was, and he was really the straw that stirred the drink for Whipple's offense, a lot of the throws he made were not into tight windows or tightly contested. You know, they were very – they were schemed open, in other words. So that's one element of this offense that I am excited for. So, okay, maybe a dumb question here, but what bogs down this offense? What, what stops this offense from – moving the ball up and down the field. Are you talking in terms that like pit or what it would mean for this offense? What would stop the, the offense here? Let's talk about this offense. So, you know, I mean, and I'm going to oversimplify, but you know, one of the things that concerns me about a pass first offense and, and you didn't say that, but if in fact this is a pass first or a heavy passing offense, one of the things that really concerns me is the day the quarterback has an off day. If the quarterback has an off day, you know, that's going to, you know, that's going to sabotage the success of the offense. If the quarterback's on, if the quarterback's playing well, you know, what, what could undermine this offense? What could stop this offense? 
one of the things that stands out to me the most would be what we were, we touched upon a little bit earlier, uh, offensive tackles. Um, if they're going up against speed rushers that are coming around the corner and, you know, maybe our interior offensive lines dealing with some, uh, interior stunts, that could be a big problem because what, I mean, one, you know, your quarterback's getting heated up, you know, he's being hurried into the throw, but number two, you're looking at your quarterback gets hit as we've learned over the past few years, Nebraska football, if he gets hit repetitively, he's probably going to end up missing some time. And, um, you know, having to use a backup quarterback would be one of the things that would bog down this team, but more to uh, the schematic answer to that, you know, what, Pitt really struggled early on against Tennessee in their uh, – I don't know if – I can't remember if it was the first or second game of the year this year. It might have been the second um, game. But they really struggled early on, and a lot of it was Pitt – or Tennessee had really physical DBs. And they really – you know, they kind of were playing that um, – kind of that matchup zone, like the Pelini defense is used to, where, yes, it's zone coverage, but – Instead, just spot dropping to a spot on the field, like John's favorite country cover three. That discussion from a few years ago, John. Uh, they're carrying them through the coverage zones to pass them off to another defender. And I, as I recall, Pitt got down 10 nothing and almost got down 17 nothing to Tennessee in that game. And so, what if we're going to be playing teams with really physical DBs, like in Ohio state, even though they're not on the schedule this year, that could present some problems. If the, the DBs are really dictating the game to the receivers in terms of, you know, what's being allowed, you know, as John with officiating, as you're well aware of. <laughs> the arm bar. Yeah. <laughs> I had a question and it went away. Uh, Damn. Wait a minute. You know, if you go back and look at, like, I think particularly last year, Scott Frost had this habit or whoever was calling plays, of putting Adrian Martinez in the position where his offensive line sucked at pass protection, but he never had a chuck down guy. No. Am I, I, am, am I wrong about that? No, you're not, because so many times we have to keep a back in or keep an H back in or keep the tight end in, you know, six, seven, eight-man protections just to have a shot at getting something off to, you know, like Toure or Betts or Omar Manning or um, what's his name, Oliver Martin. So that that was a big problem. And also, I mean, defenses are evolving to the point where they may have been blitzing the back. If the back stays in to block for a second before releasing, they'll drop off into coverage with, you know, he releases the blitz. So – that could have been that situation as well. So what do you see out of Whipple's offense to combat that kind of situation? I mean, if your offensive, let's say our offensive line is not, they're poor at pass production. What are they going to be able to do to offset that? I think you'll see a lot of screens, um, what bubble screens. I know he's a big fan of the jailbreak screen to the boundary. It might be his version of the short side option. So uh, <laughs> we should all buckle up. Uh, and we all know how much, this fan base loves bubble screens and swing passes in general. <laughs> as long you know what, if you can get the ball there quick, I, I'm fine with it. I fell in love with those plays when I watched UCLA torch us with them in 2012 with Jonathan Franklin. I was like, damn, that's a nice concept. 
after I got over the sting of the loss, I realized what great plays they were. But then when we start trying to run them, you know, the pitch don't work, you know. Well, it, you know, it helps if you don't step back, look for a second, and then bring your arm up. And your quarterback's not jumping to grab the snap way up in the air. Yeah. yeah. It's always important. Oh. Um, you know, other parts of the offense, it's not ultra-reliant on RPOs. He'll run some, but it's not like in the modern college game now where, you know, teams like Ole Miss, every play is an RPO, basically. It's he uses them in certain situations, oftentimes around the red zone. You know, you put one defender in conflict, you know, whether it's a nickelback or a weak side linebacker taking them and making them choose whether they're in the run fit or out of the run fit based on their um, what read they're getting. But it's not ultra reliant. Maybe that changes because Frost's offense, historically speaking, has been pretty heavy on RPOs. So it'll be interesting to see another point, like Todd mentioned, what different concepts and philosophies are married together with bringing with the Longhorn. Well, last year we saw a triple option where the receiver, one of the receivers was like the third option. Oh, I love those plays. Yeah, we got those from Coastal Carolina. Right. Yeah. Do we, do we, Whipple seems to play in that more with the, the motion can be used to move stuff around and, and I guess set up matchups that uh, the defense isn't ready for. Yeah, I could some of that motion, like you mentioned, I could see that being used, but maybe not on the option. You know, maybe bringing a receiver around in that orbit motion and having an option just to hand off to the running back where you swing it out wide. Kind of, kind of like what Steve Sarkeesian liked to do at Alabama in 2020. They had you know Devonte uh, Smith and Henry Ruggs and all those really good receivers, Jalen Waddle. Yeah, you know, I, I have my doubts that we're going to see any option. Um, <laughs> yeah. Unless Logan Smothers wins the job. There's your there's your package guy. You know, John John always brings well, up the yeah. Minnesota situation. And, and I don't you know. know why you wouldn't do that, honestly. Kid can run it. Kid yeah. can run it. He showed that against Iowa. So. Oh, God, it's like crouch speed hitting the corner on the option. Oh. Although the reason that you wouldn't run it is because Scott Frost has to win this year. He has to win. And here's the thing. How much of this offense can you learn by the time the first game rolls around? I mean, it should be ideally if it's taught the right way, you know, in in install meetings, ideally you should have it all the way learned because I mean, he's been here. I can't remember if he coached the Peach Bowl or not. That's one game against Michigan State, which actually would be a great game to watch since it's against a Big Ten defense. But I can't remember if Whipple was calling plays against Michigan State in the Peach Bowl or if he had already left for Nebraska. I had COVID during that time period. So I remember watching that game with a lot of Dextra Mathura fan in my system from Cough Medicine. Well, so I basically don't remember watching that game read some interviews with some of the quarterbacks and the quarterbacks, um, you know, have stressed that Whipple's expectation is that they'll know the playbook. They'll understand um, all aspects of each play as well as he does. And you kind of reading between the lines. I think that there's been, you know, a pretty heavy emphasis, a lot of, a lot of uh, work with, you know, the dynamics of that offense with the quarterbacks and, there has to be. I mean, you know, I've 
kind of made a flippant comment back before spring that, you know, the spring practices last year, it couldn't be the time, you know, the focus couldn't be on looking at, you know, a number of players and, and seeing what each one brings to the table. Uh, you know, in my opinion, last spring, they had to start implementing offense as much mm-hmm. as they possibly could. And, um, you know, so it doesn't sound to me like it's a complicated offense, but it, it sounds to me like there's a lot of options, uh, not, not the option play, but there's, there's a lot of options, uh, you know, designed into some of the, some of the plays and some of the concepts. You brought up a great point when you, what you mentioned about spring football, where it was, it's so such an emphasis on the install of it, that first spring, and not so much on what you have in terms of personnel, that by the time we get into the season, it might take a few games for it to shake out on what personnel is on the field, what's our bread and butter, who does what really well. Because at this point, I mean, even 30, six days out from the game in Ireland, we might still be trying to figure out, you know, the fine details of the offense, installing those. So it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to keep an eye on that because I mean, one, you got a ton of newcomers who are unproven commodities. And then two, everybody's kind of unproven because they're all learning the offense from the same spot. You know, they're all starting from, you know, square one. As long as they're not videotaping the practices, this, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> only we would be dumb enough to videotape cheating well you know I, that kind of gives me a little opener here you know when you talk about the whole off-season stuff videotaping practices i put this on slack the other day and and i i, I just shake my head you know all of us are such big iowa hawkeye fans <laughs> um but this is this is true this really happened um on monday apparently they uh, are hosting half of the Iowa State High School baseball tournament at Dwayne Banks Field in Iowa City. In Iowa, they started, they did it years ago, and then they played all the games in Des Moines at Principal Park, and now the last couple of years, they've split it again. So two classes are playing in Iowa City, and two classes play up in Carroll. Long story short, Dwayne Banks Field on the campus at the University of Iowa runs right alongside the outdoor practice fields. And they were making public address comments during the baseball games, canned statements, telling the fans not to watch what was going on on the football practice fields. Now, I'm sure they had a bunch of, you know, kind of official sounding language but they're telling these high school baseball fans, don't turn around and watch what's going on on the other side of that fence. <laughs> you know, we, Iowa maybe has a trick play. Are you kidding me? You know, I mean, it's just. Excellent. That quick kick kidding. on fourth down. <laughs> God, I, I had no idea. I should have looked at the Slack chat room because I would have loved to have chimed in on this conversation. That, I mean, you know, do, do you think that this. they realized if they just wouldn't have said anything, not drawn yeah. any attention to it, it would have been fine? I think they would have been. Nice job, uh, Kirk Ferentz. Well, maybe yeah. this is their way of throwing people off that the offense is going to be different this year when it's been the same. For <laughs> what, they come out running the Mike Leach air raid? Yeah, for the first quarters of every game. Yeah. <laughs> With whatever quarterback they get – 
I, I really want to ask why why has Kirk Ferentz been there twenty years and they still can never draft a decent quarterback? Maybe I brought that up before. We should you stay know, on. I, I think he's just content to line up with two tight ends, a fullback, a good running back, and have a quarterback who just doesn't screw it up. Well, that's probably a good point. You know, and honestly, as much as I used to clown on them for that, and I've been humbled a lot because we've lost to them for the past seven years, um, I've realized I'm like. What they nothing that they do is sexy or cool. It's like oh. it's effective. Like it's it's like putting on a pair of work boots. Like yeah, they're gonna keep your feet safe. They're gonna keep your feet warm. Nothing to look at. That's it. You know. You know, you're so only gonna score three points against uh, Michigan in the Big Ten title game. But you know, whatever. I watched that game at at a bar over in Council Bluffs with one of my friends who's a Husker fan, another friend who's an Iowa fan. And I thought it was going to be full of Iowa fans. It was mainly full of Nebraska fans who showed up to watch Iowa get their ass kicked. So it was beautiful being in there that night. You know, and I hate to say this, but somebody pointed out to me when I was listening to some talk radio the other day, one of the things that Iowa has done very well in the last few years that Nebraska has shown they can't do, and that's win close games. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, perhaps, you know, that conservative – low risk <laughs> a kind of philosophy that he has, you know, plays into that a little bit, but. Um, yeah. Sometimes I think it was, I've been John Bishop on big red overreaction after we lost Iowa this year. He said, sometimes you don't have to go win a game. Sometimes you just have to wait for the other guy to lose it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've handed them. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'd say under Frost, 2018 is the only year that Iowa straight up beat us when they had Noah Fant and TJ Hawkinson. We still played them to the last second field goal. That was the year where it's like, yeah, we were right there, but they they had control of that game. But 19, 20, 21, I mean, talk about they really didn't win it. We just lost it for ourselves. Yep. yep. No, that's that has to, you know, there's there's a lot to say about mindset and knowing how to win. Um, you know, taking care of business, knowing how to close out, you know, and hopefully with, you know, some of the new additions to the coaching staff this year, uh, there can be that kind of a shift in the mindset. Um, this, this team has to learn how to win football games. Um, did you, did you see the news this week about the media having limited access to this? what do you think of that, Haas? You remember last year after we lost to Illinois when Frost said they came out in a front that we didn't game plan for, and then Lubick sitting there going, no, we had the plays on the play sheet? It's a bunker mentality. That's what I think. Um, that was, that was, that was a the specific example I, I thought of. That was, was that the very that was the very first thing I thought of because, yeah, he said we had to throw away half our plays and – and Lubick said something to the effect of that's kind of a normal occurrence when, when a team yeah. comes out. And <laughs> like, I'm, I was no fan of Matt Lubick. I didn't think he was a very good coach or recruiter, but I mean, he's been around the game for a long time. His dad was Sonny Lubick, who coached at Colorado State. I mean, he knows what he's talking about. I mean, just from studying the game, you know, studying tape, I also know that that's a common occurrence. Oh, they came out in the front and weren't prepared for. It. Okay, let's rely on our rules. You know, the, blocking rules you know are you covered or uncovered where's he at is he backside shade head up play side shade you know communicate with the offensive line you can troubleshoot these things on the fly but instead you know you get this he said she said kind of thing and 
So that was my first thought when that news came out. And I, beyond that, I was really disappointed because I really enjoyed the interviews with the assistant position coaches because oftentimes coordinators and head coaches have such a global view of things that their answers are vague. Whereas in a position coach, you know, let's say we have a run play that's blown up on fourth down. Hey, the right guard, um, you know, stepped the wrong way or he didn't make a call at the line of scrimmage on who he was going to take, you know, in the blocking scheme. So I like to hear those fine details. So I'm, I'm a little disappointed by that. You know, I have two, two, two things, two more questions on that okay. points. Do you think that this is Trev Albert's method of making Frost more of a CEO as a head coach? And imprinting in his head, you have to be a CEO mm-hmm. and let these guys do their jobs. Because I think my biggest fear is Frost is going to go into this game with Northwestern and, and the first quarter is going to be called by Mark Whipple and then Scott Frost is going to go, I'm going to go call the plays. And he sucks. He honestly is not good. Yeah, kind of a little, you know, We've seen we saw Pelini be a little reactionary with his offensive coordinators. Um, Capital One Bowl against South Carolina comes to mind. Um, I could see that being a play by Trev to make him into more of a CEO. You know, being the united front to the media, um, presenting the message of the program, not having so many different voices. You know, saying a few different things. I mean, remember the debacle with Bob Diaco. At the tail end of 2017, I mean, good lord, I still remember some of those. That guy would have because they were so absurd. A, he would have had a decent career if he didn't have to actually talk to people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if he was just just went and did his job, called some defense, you know, coordinated some defense, great. But instead, my favorite one still to this day is the: Does a two-year-old get mad when they can't lift the coffee table? No, because they're two. <laughs> they don't know how. <laughs> Which, in his defense, he's actually more correct from a psychological perspective than he may have been aware of. I don't know what his field of study was, but, like, he was talking about self-efficacy. But the fact that he was just so weird did not help matters. I mean, that that, one of the weirdest interviews I've ever seen. Second, the second point I'm going to make is way more conspiratorial. All right. When Mickey Joseph speaks... I am more interested in hearing what Mickey Joseph has to say than anybody else on that football team at this point in time. Oh, do you think, do you think that this is a move to actually limit Mickey Joseph's rising influence? I can see that. I, you know, let, like, let's just, um, let, let, let's get a little bit more conspiratorial here. I'll join you on this one. (laughs) Um, Nebraska football has been an absolute soap opera for the past 20 years. It's an all-male soap opera. There's no other way to put it. It wouldn't shock me if that was a way to suppress his rising star, you know, put a muzzle on him so he can't, you know, get out in front of the media. Kind of remember how popular Bo was in 03, his defensive coordinator under Solich. But, I, I mean, there's some people I've talked to, not like insiders, I'm just talking about friends who – you know, they've talked about, hey, if Frost gets fired, you know, at some point in the season, do you think Mickey Joseph would be the interim? And do you think he'd get promoted full time? And I mean, like, I, we're in Nebraska. I think we can do better than that, barring him going like 7-0 and down the stretch and we win the Big Ten West and go play for the Big Ten championship. But um, I don't know. That is a good point, John. 
I, I like the fact that uh, that you're the conspiratorial type on here. You know what, yeah. John? You've missed it. You already you already answered this question months ago. If Scott Frost is truly going to run this program like a CEO, then the person who's going to stand up and talk to the media is his spokesperson. Scott, they need to hire a spokesperson, somebody yeah, who can do. actually say things without throwing everybody else under the bus. You know, some a trained professional, a trained yeah, press secretary. Jen Psaki. Jen Psaki is available right now. You know, Ari Fleischer. <laughs> DJ Craig from the West. Yeah. yeah, I mean, don't put any of those coaches up there. Put the spokesperson up there and let them respond to all the questions from the media. We cannot confirm nor deny there was an assistant <laughs> Iowa coach in the stands clapping that threw our game off. Oh, God, I forgot about that one. Yeah. Okay. Well, Todd, you were going to say something before I interrupt no, you. I was just going to be stupid and make the comment about the spokesperson. So I like it. Uh, you know, Honestly, I'm surprised Nick Saban hasn't gone that route. Isn't that the truth? Because he runs it like he's the president there, basically, you know, got yeah. a whole cabinet. Well, I'll tell you what, the, the, the most entertaining thing that I saw this week relative to college football or whatever was uh, part of Mike Leach's interview down at the uh, SEC media days where he was uh, talking about neckties and how neckties absolutely serve no purpose. And then some kind of a comment about, uh, you know, he'd even referenced the guy who invented the current necktie. And um, he made some kind of a comment that when they, when they finally invent the time machine, that guy better find a way to get lost because people are going to come after his ass. <laughs> I agree 100%. I hate wearing a tie. Yeah, I haven't worn a tie for probably 15 years. When I was student teaching, all my classmates, all my male classmates, they'd wear a tie, shirt and tie, student teach. I'd show up, polo, a sweater, a quarter zip, anything but a tie. Went out of my way to not wear one. Uh, three days next week. I'm going to try like hell to figure out an option. But uh, you could do the cowboy tie thing. A little the bolo. bolo. There you yeah, go. Yeah, that what did they? Is that what did they call us? Bolo tie. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I wear a tie, I just feel like I'm being slowly strangled by a very weak person, you know. <laughs> just, just right there. I, I'm in a wedding in early August as a groomsman. And at first, I thought it was just shirt and slacks. And then as we were getting at the tailor, you know, men's warehouse getting fit and all that. It was like shirt, slacks, and tie. And I was like, shit, I was almost out of the woods on this one. <laughs> well, do we I know the Ric Flair else? look, the sport coat, you know. Just a collared shirt, no tie. There you go. Anything you else go. on Mark Whipple and the offense? I will be interested to see what he, how he attacks Iowa's uh, nickel four two five Raider package that they run almost exclusively against us. Um, they run a lot against like Ohio State, but they played Ohio State like once in the past decade in twenty seventeen. So can't really use that as a sample size but they run that package almost exclusively against frost offense historically with uh whipple's offense being very pass happy i envision that we'll probably see it from them again this year what is phil parker 
at Iowa get to do, you know, because he, as much as I hate Iowa, I mean, he's kind of like a Mike Hankwitz type of defensive coordinator. He yeah. always has something clever, you know, some, some play call at the perfect time, some front, some adjustment. What's he going to do against Whipple's offense? And what is Whipple going to do to counter that? Because, like, Ramir Johnson moving to that slot receiver kind of Marshall Folk type role in this offense. Great idea to match him up against Big Ten outside linebackers. But then I also have to think like Jim Leonard at Wisconsin and Phil Parker, like they're not and Joe Rossi at Minnesota. They're not dumb guys. They'll they'll find a way to try to counter. So it's I'm going to be really excited to see Whipple in the chess match against Big Ten defensive coordinators because there's a lot of damn good ones in this league. Okay, Northwestern. They always suck us into a rock fight. Yep, and they're that's the thing. They always get us into a rock fight, and their DBs will mug our receivers off the line of scrimmage. It's kind of like almost like an NFL game in that regard. You know, I mean, like, not anymore, but like when the Patriots beat the Rams in the Super Bowl back in 01, they just mugged the Rams receivers off the line of scrimmage. That'll be a good – That'll be a good test. It'd be an even better test if Hankwitz is still coordinating their defense. But um, I'm sure that whoever it is that I'm drawing a blank on the name now. O'Neal. O'Neal. I'm sure that, you know, Northwestern will be coached up because, I mean, this is their bounce back year. I, w- I would venture to say that Northwestern, you know, knowing that we have a new offense in place, they're going to throw a lot of different things at mm-hmm. our offense. And I think, that, and like you said, they're going to play really, really physical on the edges just to see what they can establish and, and get under our skin would be my guess. And then where does it go from there would be, would be what's going to be interesting to watch, I think. Yeah, good. You, bring, you brought up a great point there, Todd, with, you know, they're going to see what they can establish against us. They're probably going to throw out some junk fronts against us just defensive linemen align different ways to throw off our blocking scheme. They're probably going to really want to test, hey, how well have these guys learned this new offense? Because if you can exploit somebody just from alignment and assignment, oh, you'll take that every time. That's that's just taking cheap, easy points, basically. Do we expect to see many draws at all? Draw plays? Draws, yeah. Yeah, they, they – uh, at Pitt, they ran a sprint draw where Pickett would start rolling out and then just, you know, hand, you know, put the ball right out in front of him to the tailback coming the other direction. So, and sprint draws, I like that play. The traditional tailback draw, um, not re- a huge fan of it. <laughs> Quarterback runs. Uh, not too much. Um, you know, Pickett took off on that scramble against Wake that led to the uh, fake slide being outlawed <laughs> by the NCAA, which was awesome. But that was just not a broken play. It wasn't a designed run. Um, I maybe you'll see, you know, I, you'll see the quarterback sneak in certain situations, obviously. And maybe you'll see a bootleg. And then, you know, you never know with Frost's influence and, you know, mobile quarterbacks historically here under him. I think you could maybe see that make its way into the offense but Whipple himself I'm not real sure that he's ever been keen on a running quarterback or when you're asking a guy to throw the ball 40 50 times a game at times you don't want to risk running him because you got to I mean they had to bring in their backup against uh, Michigan State because Pickett set out of the Peach Bowl and then the backup 
gets hurt. So they're on their third string quarterback. And so, I mean, look how quickly things can go downhill. Just like when we saw Riker five start against Purdue and uh, on Halloween in 2015. You bring that up. Quarterbacks yeah. then. Quarterbacks. Before anybody thinks about that Purdue game. Court, have you watched anything or should that be a, a separate show? I think that could be about? a separate show in and of itself okay. right there. All right. Then we'll leave that alone for now. Um, I don't know, Todd, what else do we have? You know, it's, it's been kind of a quiet week. Uh, not a, not a whole lot going on, I guess, you know, looking at other Husker sports, you know, people that listen to this show know that we have a bias towards baseball. And uh, unfortunately, well, I guess it depends on how you look at it. Fortunately, unfortunately, there were no Nebraska uh, current roster players, nor any recruits that uh, were picked in this year's draft. So um, what what's left, I, I guess, and that's kind of indicative of the season that we saw. Um, so apparently the two remaining questions from a baseball perspective is whether um, Griffin Everett and Shea Shanneman will be back. They both got a COVID year. Uh, there were people that thought that they uh, would get drafted. They still have an opportunity to sign um, free agent contracts. But, um, yeah, everything else has been pretty quiet. Um, there's not a whole lot going on. So it's that time of year. Yes, John. I have one more question. I, th- I believe we just passed Trev Albert's first full year as Nebraska's athletic director. Is that correct? Am I? Yeah, I think, yeah, last year at this time. When he was hired, I did a YouTube video that was really scathing and said, (laughs) why in the hell they didn't they go outside the program? But really, you know, looking back on it, I think it was misdirected anger. And at the time, if you remember right, they had to announce this right away because the fucking athletic department couldn't keep their mouths shut about anything. They leaked Mm -hmm. everything. And that pissed me off a lot. And I took that out on this is a bad hire. How do you guys feel about his first year on the job? I think he's done for stepping in, you know, a month before football season started. I think he's done a nice job. Um, I think it was a creative way, you know, to give Frost a little bit of a longer leash to uh, maybe turn things around. He extended the same grace to Hoiberg you know, try to help him, you know, turn things around. And I'll be the first to admit I'm a little biased as a University of Nebraska Omaha alum. I saw what he did to build the UNO athletic department during my four years there as a student. And I mean, it went from kind of being a niche cottage industry kind of athletic department to by the end of my time there felt kind of like a, you know, not a big time school, but, you know, at least like a mid-major school, even though they're a low major. So I think he's done a great job. I think, I think he's the guy that's going to, you know, get this athletic department back to being functional and not just an absolute dysfunctional mess. I think when you say something like that, you should cross yourself. And- <laughs> no, no shit. Yeah. He's the guy. Because <laughs> I mean, like looking back on like, it's been a year since he got hired. It's almost hard to believe it's only been a year because it's been so much <laughs> drama from that AD. Over, I mean, he takes over. Well, Moose gets fired. He takes over. Uh, before Moose got fired, there was the whole Nebraska-Oklahoma trying to get out of the Oklahoma game and then trying to get out of the, playing a game in Ireland again. And then, you know, 
Frost gets popped by the NCAA, and then the season starts, and then you know we're losing games. Frost gonna be fired. So it's like, holy shit! Like how that guy probably Trev was probably thinking like, what the hell did I walk into when he took that job? You you know, John, I resent you uh, asking us for our opinions on this because if you recall, I made the promise that I was not going to say a negative thing about Scott Frost during the month of February, and I didn't. And now, one year into the administration of Trev Alberts, you're asking me <laughs> what I think of Trev Alberts. And I made it very, very clear yeah. well over a year ago what I think about Trev Alberts. Yeah. And so what saddens me is that UNO still doesn't have a wrestling program. That does sadden but, me too. But I can't. I can't say anything good about Trev Alberts, but I wouldn't fire him. How's that? That's not bad. <laughs> I, know that, I know that your heart rate is very high right now. <laughs> the moment I said you went in the back of your head, you went that fucking prick. Why did you ask yeah. out? I mean, look at all the red behind me is stuck to the wall. <laughs> My head blew apart. Yeah. No, like um, the football decision. When I started going to UNO, I remember thinking like, damn, wanting to get into college football, coaching college football would be so easy if they just had a football program. Thanks a lot, Trev Alberts, you know. And then, you know, I saw all the other things they did for the campus. And so my by the time I got done at UNO, I, I flipped my opinion on Trev Alberts. But there was a time that it was just like I'd walk by Coniglia Field every morning on my way into class and see it as a soccer pitch. And it would basically just be like, God damn it. That shouldn't be a soccer pitch. That should be a football field. Exactly. What, what, what he has brought to the university is professionalism and he's brought organization and he has brought people on board, on board, I believe um, with a vision. And um, he's doing that um, without breaking the bank. And in mm -hmm. fact, he's been very mindful of finances. Um, he, he walked into it, you know, it seemed like for a while, we just kept uncovering mess after mess after mess. And um, I don't think anybody truly understood how bad it had gotten under Bill Moose. Um, so you have to give the guy some credit there. And, and he has, um, in his first year, he's the best athletic director we've had since Bill Byrne. I'll just leave it that way. So I'd agree with that. Yeah, I think he's been fairly forthcoming and honest about the contracts for Frost and Hoiberg that were just set up to like, I don't know, like we were going to print our own money, I guess. Without <laughs> <laughs> any performance requirements in them or anything. So <laughs> I don't know. I guess well, well he you know, I guess for for the first year, it, uh, I did another video about how this was the worst this was the worst year in Nebraska school history with regards to sports. I mean, if you take you put the women in there, yes, uh, the women obviously perform very well, but for the three major men's sports, I don't think we could have, we, we possibly couldn't have been worse. But, no, uh, it doesn't get much worse than what we put well, forth this year. Absolutely. So his second year will be determining who gets to stay and who gets to go and where we go from here. So I guess you know, 
I don't know if it matters if you have a Nebraska guy. I'm getting less and less concerned about that as we go on. <laughs> Be more like, can we hire a Merck? Can we I just, just want get a Merck in here? Job. Yeah, That's all I care about anymore. Yeah, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think there are people that will, you know, no matter what happens with Frost, they'll still defend him to the death. So, yeah. I, I, I don't get that mentality myself, but whatever. You know. Maybe I'll just become like the hipster Husker hipster and defend Bill Callahan to the death. You know, you should have never been fired. <laughs> Not sure. You can recruit. I'll give him that. So, well, I'll tell you what. I, it's time to wrap it up, fellas. Sounds good. Time. Yep. Well, um, we thank everybody for joining us this evening. Um, we look forward to having Haas back. You know, to break down things a little bit further um, over the course of the next few weeks uh, prior to the start of the season. Haas, it's nice to have you back and, and sharing your wisdom. John, as always, it's good to see you alive. Um, I, I, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll bump into each other, I'm sure, here in the near future. So anyway, for John Johnson, for Haas Reuter, this is Todd Wolverton reminding you that five hearts are all the hearts you need. And I didn't do it as good as Greg does. John, you still got it right. Go big red. Win the damn off season. There you go.